2: It sounds so much better. It sounds better. It better, man. It's the other stuff is like listening to a play.
0: This is political breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Well, the 2024 election cycle will be the first where the supercharged influence of artificial intelligence or AI will present real and difficult challenges to voters and also to campaigns and ultimately our democracy maybe even the integrity of our elections. Jonathan Mehta-Stein from California Common Cause has been thinking about that. And today in Sacramento, they detailed the threats and offered some solutions by way of legislation and other things. Stein will be joining me to talk about that shortly. But joining me right now, first, is my Political Breakdown co-host and KQED politics correspondent, Marisa Lagos. Hey, Marisa. Hello. So before we get to more mundane matters like the state budget, which is incredibly important, um, let's talk about... <laughs> Wait a uh, solid,
3: Scott. Wait a solid.
0: It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really important, so and keep mundane. listening. Uh But first, uh, our former president and perhaps future president or at least presidential nominee, Donald Trump, was in uh, court today in D.C. Uh, and, you know, many people see him as kind of uh, an accelerant for a lot of these uh, problems that we've had with our democracy. Um, It looked like the three-judge panel that he was uh, trying to convince he has presidential immunity to uh, was kind of skeptical of those claims.
3: Right. This is the case brought by the federal government, Special Counsel Jack Smith, uh, in relation to the January 6th insurrection. And, you know, he is really trying to claim that because he was president at the time, he was acting, you know, with his official duties, uh, that he can't actually be criminally prosecuted unless he was impeached first. Kind of a grab bag of, of arguments that, to your point, even the Republican judge on that panel, I think, was pretty skeptical of because it does open a potential. I mean, he's calling it a Pandora's box if presidents are allowed to be prosecuted or former presidents. I think you could argue on the opposite side, it opens a Pandora's box if we say that presidents are above the law.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, oh, the, that judge you alluded to, the Republican, said, well, wait a minute. Now, let's suppose that a president uh, wanted to have a political opponent assassinated and got the, the SEAL 6 team to do that. Would that be, you know, right, could above, he be prosecuted for that? Law. And I mean, that's an extreme example, uh, but one which really put uh, Trump's lawyers on the defensive.
3: Absolutely. And I do think that we have to, you know, think about all this in the context of the election. I mean, if Trump is reelected, he could move to dismiss these cases. He could give himself immunity, um, you know, pardon himself potentially. And so part of I think it seems like what is happening in this case and some of the others is, you know, this Move by his team to sort of delay things. Right, this trial is set for March fourth, but now it will go to a full appeals panel if it's appealed by either side. Depending on what this, you know, three judge panel decides, could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. We have another federal case on the documents uh, set for May twentieth, and all of that is still during primary season, right? So it could really matter.
0: It really could, and you know, um, you know, we've talked before about this idea that there, you know, a lot of. Voters are for Trump or Biden no matter what, you know, even if he gets convicted, they'll still be with Trump. But there are definitely voters, perhaps ones who don't like either Biden or Trump, and maybe even some just Republicans who wouldn't take too kindly to having a president who has been convicted on some of these really serious charges.
3: Yeah. And I think Trump's campaign knows that. And that's one of the reasons they would like to lock up his nomination really by Super Tuesday, which is March 5th, which California is a part of, you know, because it's going to be a lot harder to take that nomination away from him if he's already got the delegate count coming into the convention and I and or even months ahead of that. And so I think, you know, this is something that um, I, I think maybe people's eyes might be glazing over a little bit. Uh, another court case against Trump. But and I it's think very that's important. part of his
0: legal strategy Absolutely. or political strategy anyway. But, you know, it, it just reminds you that he is you got to give him. Credit, I guess, for having the ability to just suck all the oxygen, get all the attention. He did this in 2016. And even though he's doing these antics in court, delay as much as he can, and all these, you know, wild allegations, not wild, I mean, these are just, there's just a long list of indictments. He still, you know, is able to be front and center. Well, and he
3: turns it around on the Democrats. He says, well, this is a political persecution. Instead of, you know, a, a criminal case against somebody who allegedly Shows how corrupt the a mob. Exactly, <laughs> um, and so I do think to your point, this is where, and we're going to be talking about this a lot this year. You know, those swing voters, independent voters, and voters—it's really going to be key, kind of how some of this shakes out. I think to them making their minds
0: up. Well, and it's interesting too that you know, uh, you know, when you look at the Supreme Court, you know, a lot of people see them now as being very political, going all the way back to Bush v. Gore you know, that decided, basically, mm-hmm. stopped the count of votes in Florida handed the election to George W. Bush. But we're seeing in this case that a lot of these judges have ruled who Trump appointed are ruling against him. Now, I think the judge yeah, today was not like but.
3: this is an abortion, right? This isn't just like a partisan or sort of uh, conservative versus liberal question on policy. These are questions on our, the fundamentals of our democracy, our constitution, our judicial system. And if you recall, I mean, I think that some of the sort of reputation problems that the Supreme Court is now facing started with Bush v. Gore.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, in the time left here, you're heading up to Sacramento shortly. Uh, The governor governor is going to be uh, doing his initial draft of the state budget, and they have a $68 billion problem that they're going to have to grapple with.
3: That's right. I mean, that's according to the Legislative Analyst's Office, the nonpartisan body. Um, It could be smaller. The governor's been hinting that his administration thinks it's not quite that large, but still, and even with the giant $310 billion dollar you know, overall budget the state has this year. Uh, it's going to be a more challenging year. I mean, you'll recall just two years ago, Scott, we had a hundred million dollar surplus. So I think a lot of voters might have a little bit of whiplash going, what is happening here? Um,
0: and we should say it's not like necessarily uh, the governor's fault. I mean, no, no. A, lo- a lot of that surplus was due to the COVID and the fact that we got a lot of uh, big infusions of federal money.
3: And that the economy has really well. been doing gangbusters for a long time as interest rates were very low, as we've seen them jacked up in order to get inflation under control. That has had this trickle-down effect on housing sales, which is big for California, on unemployment, and really crucially on the tech and other sort of sectors that really rely on venture capital and investments. Um, The good news before we go, there is about uh, $24 24 billion billion in savings accounts. And I um, I, I think this is going to be a not fun year for lawmakers and the governor in terms of the budget. But it is not anywhere near the sort of dire situation we faced about a decade ago during the Great Recession because of a lot of changes that the state has undergone. Yeah, I
0: think they're probably hoping that, you know, we have seen toward the end of last year the stock market recovering, doing really well. Uh, Inflation is down. Interest rates are coming down. So maybe the problem won't be quite as big as they're saying. Fingers crossed, guys. Fingers crossed. I mean, just one last word on all that. This is all coming with you know relatively new leadership. Uh, with the speaker Robert Rivas, his first full term, President Pro Tem uh, in the Senate, Tony Atkins will be leaving. We're going to be talking to yeah. her later this week. So and new budget chairs and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's uh, it's there's a lot to lot to chew over
3: and a lot to watch in terms of how they handle this and and what the priorities are of Democrats in the legislature of Republicans on those committees to some extent and then clearly how they might line up with or not with the governor.
0: Exactly. All right. The one and only Marisa Lagos. Drive safely. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All All right. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Jonathan Medestine from California Common Cause joins us to talk about AI and the 2024 election. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And as we enter this critical election year, we're going to be paying a lot of attention here on the podcast to threats to our democracy and specifically threats to election integrity. And help us understand the threats posed by things like artificial intelligence or AI and what California and the nation need to do urgently. We've invited someone who's been thinking a lot about this and whose organization is proposing some solutions. Jonathan Medestein is executive director of California Common Cause. They just launched a new project called the California Initiative for Technology and Democracy, cited for short. Jonathan, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks for having me. Well, let me begin with that uh, initiative. Um, Tell us a little bit about it. First of all, is it a nonprofit organization and
2: what is it going to be doing? Right now, it's a project of California Common Cause, which has worked on voting rights, redistricting, money and politics, a full suite of democracy issues for many, many years. And we just realized that working on a full suite of democracy issues in this digital era would be incomplete if we weren't tackling the threats posed to our democracy by AI, disinformation, deepfakes and so forth. So we are uh, beginning a critical election year, and it will probably be the first AI election. What I mean by that is that generative AI deepfakes, uh, fake audio, fake video, fake images, fake text, will be inundating our information ecosystem. We're already seeing some of this. Um, We've seen disinformation in the past, certainly. That's not new. Uh, But what we're seeing now is disinformation turbocharged by new technological tools that allow anybody, foreign states, non-state actors, online trolls, campaigns themselves, to put out incredibly convincing content meant to deceive voters or destabilize elections. And we've already seen it. The Slovakian presidential election was impacted by deepfakes. The Bangladeshi uh, presidential election impacted by deepfakes. We're beginning to see it in some elections in Cal- uh, in the United States. There's a DeSantis campaign ad in the Republican primary with a fake photo, a deepfake photo of Trump hugging Fauci. There's other examples from within the United States. And the American public is just not ready.
0: You, going back to those uh, foreign elections in those two countries you mentioned, uh, do you have a sense of who was behind that and why? I mean, do you th- I mean, because so as you were describing that, I'm thinking, oh, that's just like a little pilot project to kind of test it out somewhere where no one's paying attention before we bring it to the
2: United States. So to give you an example, in the Slovakian presidential election, uh, shortly before Election Day, fake audio emerged of one of the two presidential candidates saying actually one very serious thing and one what we might think of as silly thing. The very serious thing was that they were attempting to rig the election. The silly thing was they was planning on raising taxes on beer. But both clearly, you know, it's no matter important how, to people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and both clearly were meant to destabilize and to influence voters. The intent really, I think, is is there. It's a dry run in many respects for bigger elections occurring around the world this year, and then ultimately November, the presidential count in America.
0: So what you mentioned earlier, the deep fakes, this turbocharging of uh, misinformation, disinformation, uh, give us a
2: like a, one or two concrete examples of how that might look. Right. So a... A deepfake targeting a candidate is relatively straightforward. We just mentioned examples of uh, the DeSantis campaign or this instance from Slovakia. You might think of, for example, a deepfake of Joe Biden falling down the stairs of Air Force One to make him look silly. That's... um, I, I guess playful. That's a bad word for it, but there's much more dangerous stuff out there. So imagine a robocall in Joe Biden's voice going to millions of voters on the eve of election, telling them their voting locations have changed. Or, right, if we move on to move out of the realm of candidates and into things that can destabilize trust in elections, imagine a fake video of an elections official, quote unquote, caught on tape saying that their voting machines can be hacked or that vote by mail ballots are not secure. If you are a conspiracy theorist trying to attack the legitimacy of American elections, you can create confirmatory evidence, false, but confirmatory evidence that everyone else will believe with a few clicks of a button. These things are really easy to produce in the modern era. The barriers to entry are really low and the costs are near zero. And so I want to come back to some of those
0: specifics, but the idea of this initiative is to do what? Work with lawmakers in Sacramento to come up with some guardrails, some regulations? Because this
2: technology is so new, there is no well-developed policy field teaming with solutions and experts that can help policymakers move in this area. So CITED, the California Initiative for Technology and Democracy, is an attempt to bring together tech leaders, uh, finance, VC, law, public policy, communications, campaign folks, experts from a variety of fields to build an interdisciplinary hub of expertise that can advise lawmakers and regulators as they attempt to move. Why are we doing this in California? Because Congress isn't able to take meaningful action to protect our democracy in this moment. And so it turns to California to lead the country. We've done this before in the past. Look at data privacy, where our bill is now being recreated in other states. Look at automobile emissions, where our choices drove nationwide change. We can lead this issue in California. We just need... Sacramento to build out its expertise. So you're talking
0: about, yeah, creating this uh, like think tanky kind of thing to help advise uh, lawmakers. But, you know, you can easily imagine, just take tech, different agendas. I mean, how are you going to get people to agree on what the regulation should be or even what the issues are?
2: That's true in every major policy field, right? You're going to have a variety of stakeholders who are all going to have really strongly held views. We have to bring everybody into the process. This has to be a joint effort, including the tech companies, including the legislature, including civil society, including national experts who frankly don't have all that much going on at Congress right now and are really happy to help California figure out the way. Um, This is going to take a group and as I really importantly, interdisciplinary effort in order to get this done right.
0: You know, uh, yes, we are in the age of AI now, but, you know, the Obama campaign in 2008 was very uh, insightful and using cutting-edge, at the time, technology to reach voters, using text messages and that sort of thing. Obviously, Donald Trump uh, used it in 2016. So are you just saying this is part of an evolution, or are we
2: in a whole new era? I would say we're in a whole new era. Uh, The the fact of the matter is is that that disinformation, those tech tools— we're really, really effective at helping people reach voters. Um, and that's that's actually a useful and positive function for AI going forward. I think there are good, absolutely positive uses of AI in this space, including helping elections officials find new efficiencies in election administration, helping under-resourced campaigns reach voters more effectively, um, helping GOTV efforts uh, uh, target uh, voters more effectively. So we don't want to disrupt any of that. But the ability to deceive voters and to destabilize our information ecosystems is a quantum leap from anything we have seen in past elections. And the real fear, Scott, is that people will begin to not know what images, audio, uh, uh, text that they can trust. And they Retrench into tribalism. They say, "I'm going to start believing everything that confirms my biases, and I'm going to reject as fake anything that challenges them."
0: Yeah, and of course, we're living now in this media ecosystem where, uh, you know, maybe in the past media organizations would debunk things right away. We can't really count on that uh, in this in this moment that we're in. Um, you say in this white paper that you recently published, Jonathan, that this problem that you're describing. Uh, with AI, et cetera, is really extremely, uh, most extreme, particularly s- extreme at the
2: state level as opposed to the national level. Why do you say that? Right. So the white paper is called Democracy on Edge in the Digital Age, Protecting Democracy in California in the Era of AI powered Disinformation and Unregulated Social Media. Um, the reason why it's particularly extreme in California or in the state level is because at the federal level, we have a number of major institutions in civil society, nonprofits and think tanks and so forth that have invested themselves in building this expertise over time. Uh, and at the state level, you have a emaciated uh, policy-making, or regulatory infrastructure that can assist policymakers. Now that may sound curious in California where we emaciated, have- Emaciated, that's like an interesting word. We have this <laughs> enormous amount of tech expertise in California, right? The, 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 the tech companies that have driven so much innovation and so much productivity are located here The tools that are posing a threat to our democracy are in large part created here. And yet policymakers in Sacramento most often have to go to the tech industry's trade associations and its lobbyists when it has questions about regulating the tech industry. Uh, And too often the answer is that self-regulation will solve the problem. So what we need in California, and frankly we need in every state, but California has the opportunity to lead, is beginning to build this interdisciplinary expertise that can provide unbiased expertise to lawmakers as they try to take positive action. Does that word unbiased
0: trouble you at all? Because we all have biases, right? And, you know, I just wonder, uh, I mean, I don't know who's who's choosing the people that are going to be part of this. Maybe it's you.
2: It's a great point. What we mean by unbiased is informed by the tech industry's business models and needs but independent of industry and not beholden to any private stakeholders. But some of them will be from the industry, yeah? Absolutely. Part of our advisory councils include former and current tech executives who can advise us on how to get regulation right. But they're balanced by law school deans and civil rights experts and campaign professionals and a whole host of other folks that can create that interdisciplinary aspect we're looking for.
0: What do you think we've learned from the regulation or lack of regulation or self-regulation of social media, you know, things like Facebook and Twitter that can be applied or need to be applied right now?
2: It's such a great question. We are accustomed in this country to the idea that if you as an industry create products, that are a danger in some way to us, as productive or helpful as they may be, they pose a danger to us in some way. The airline industry, the pharmaceutical industry, any uh, food uh, production, uh, makers of home electronics, they are accustomed to regulation, inspection, testing. They have to make sure that their products are good for people or at least won't harm them before they go to market. With tech, there is no similar expectation from the industry, from government or from the public. It is time, I think it is clear, it is time for the era of totally unregulated tech to come to an end and for the industry, for government, and for civil society to work together to figure out the best way to use these tools. There is data upon data at this point showing, for example, teen mental health is being disastrously affected by social media platforms. No one is looking at those impacts and how to mitigate them before products are released. We have to look, we have to re-examine our assumptions in this area. You
0: uh, you often hear. I've heard Governor Newsom say, "Well, we have to have regulations, but we don't want to stifle
2: innovation." Uh, so, how do you thread that needle? There's a lot of needles to thread in this particular case. We have to balance uh, the limitations of Section 230 at the federal level. We have to balance. What is that? A, a Section 230 at the fe- is a federal law uh, says that it was a choice made in the nineties by Congress that says that tech platforms or social media platforms cannot be held accountable for what is posted on their platform. So if you run a blogging site and I put on your blogging site instructions on how to make a bomb, I would be the one held accountable, not you. You are just a platform, okay? Well, what that means is you can't hold Uh, Even in state law, you can't hold tech in the tech industry or social media platforms accountable for disinformation or hate or whatever the case may be. You encourage them to moderate that stuff or to fact check that stuff, but you can't hold them accountable. So that takes a whole set of tools um, off the table. The First Amendment requires us to respect free speech. Um, And then there's innovation. We really don't want to. I mean, Governor Newsom is right about that. We don't want to stifle uh, innovation. And there are ways, as I mentioned earlier, that AI can be used to actually make elections more effective or to make GOTV more effective. So we have to figure out how to walk through this very complicated obstacle course. And the white paper we released last week is actually providing that roadmap. We love to say California is, you know,
0: as, as Newsom says, you know, this is you know, we're the coming attractions for the rest of the country. Right. We Nobody knows anything until we do it. But I'm wondering, are there things and, and you do mention in the white paper, like I think Texas, uh, Michigan, maybe there are things happening in other states. And then there's the EU, the European Union, which is really much more aggressive on these kinds of things, not just on tech, but all kinds of consumer related things. What are you learning? What is there to learn from there?
2: EU, the EU is really where. Everyone should be looking for the most thoughtful uh, policymaking in this area. They are years ahead of the United States. I can speak to what's going on in other states, but uh, by and large, what the states are looking at right now is uh, prohibition on political deepfakes, uh, usually targeting candidates because politicians are the ones passing these bills and they're most sensitive to deepfakes that target them. And so uh, what we're seeing coming out of the States is you can ban or you can label political deepfakes that target candidates within a certain amount of time before an election. The EU is doing something or attempting to do things that are considerably more sophisticated and considerably more robust. And one idea that they really like is uh, and will make part of the AI Act is requiring generative AI platforms to embed within their AI tools um, provenance markers, uh, which is sometimes called watermarking. The idea that if they create, let's say, a synthetic, that's a nicer way of saying fake video, um, the user who reads it or views it should be able to click on uh, an embedded link or something of that kind that shows them what AI tool created this. Well, confirm, first of all, that it's synthetic. Wouldn't it be better just automatically have that pop up? Because you're asking people to, to take an extra step. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, there's a lot of ways that you can handle this. Um, One way that we're interested in is uh, creating the best possible watermarking. So you have this information about where a video was created, who created, what tools were used in creating it, um, available to the viewer immediately. But there are concerns about visible watermarks, putting something on the, the surface of an image or a video uh, because they can be Photoshopped off, but then even more worryingly, they can be Photoshopped on to real content mm-hmm. and then uh, sow a suspicion about a real video or a real image. And so what we're interested in is um, imperceptible embedded metadata in a generative AI content, and then using that watermark uh, require social media companies to flag for their users posts that include an image or or video or text that has, as they know, because of the watermark, they know has been synthetically created or uh, it's inauthentic or fake.
0: Jonathan, uh, so much of what you're saying and what you've written in this white paper is terrifying, basically. Uh, and I'm wondering what gives you hope
2: or what would what should give us hope? This problem has existed for many, many years. Uh, social media has been largely unregulated. It has been, I think, declining in terms of the quality of democratic discourse in those spaces. Uh, we're seeing more and more evidence that it's impacting our well-being and our mental health, particularly among teens and teen girls. We are finally at a moment where there is a critical mass of, uh, and, and critical interest in taking action. So we have an opportunity. That's what gives me hope. We have an opportunity to take action for the very first time.
0: And, you know, here we are. It's January 2024. We have a primary in March, a big election in November. Is it possible but also necessary
2: to get some of this done by then, before then? Yes and yes. And one of the things that aids us is the fact that the public is wildly in support of taking action. So there was a poll from the Berkeley um, Institute, IGS, yep. yep, from IGS in November that showed that of Californians indicate that they are concerned about the problem, about about the impact AI and disinformation may have on this year's elections. Um, And that includes over three-fourths of every possible group, men and women, all regions, all races, all ages, and importantly, all political parties. And a similarly enormous majority of Californians think it is the responsibility, that's a quote, the responsibility of state government to take action to fight back these threats. You don't see unanimity like that on any issue in America today. We have the public behind us.
0: Yeah, all right, well thank you so much for flagging all of this and working on it, and I think we all, based on your poll results, we all, or three quarters of us anyway, really hope you're successful this year, and you know, the sooner the better. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jonathan metta from California Common Cause. Thanks, Scott. And that's a wrap for Tuesday, January 9th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producers are Juan Carlos Lara and Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening.
3: Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world.
0: I love this
1: place. We were once seen as like the place to be California.